O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake, and I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Man, I missed you guys. We missed you guys this summer. It's so good to be back. And I have to say, our worship is better than any other church we went to. I'm not being mean. I'm just saying it was awesome this morning. And um, before I jump into this sermon, I just want to express my gratitude. Our gratitude as a family for this summer and uh, this time of sabbatical, three months away from uh, ministry, three months away from responsibilities here. Um, you know, I, don't, I know that I don't necessarily deserve a sabbatical any more than anybody else. Um, many of you work really hard at your jobs and probably work harder than I do, and we're like, when is my turn? Uh, <laughs> I know I, I've heard that, um, but I want to thank you. I want to thank you for a break from preaching and leading and decision-making and being on and being uh, just having to think about what's next. And, and it, was, it was amazing. Uh, we, we spent time, uh, took the oldest two boys backpacking in Utah for a week. We were back for June. In July, we went to Vermont for two weeks and stayed at a cabin on a lake with uh, younger kids. And then Susan and I got away for two weeks to Quebec City, just the two of us. And then we're back here for August. And it's been terrific. It's just been great. We, we, to have time where we're just present to each other and to the Lord, and uh, there's no to-do list, and we're available to, I'm available to my kids in ways that I'm never available, and Susan and I have time. Uh, it's just, it was really great. I want to publicly also thank the elders and the staff for creating this too, um, the gift of, of this time. This is the first time I've ever been really to be away from this church, any church, 
and feel like I don't have to worry about anything. Like nobody's going to call me and there's no like, hey, Jeff, you need to weigh in on this. It, it was really nice and I'm really grateful for that. Um, and I want to thank you. I want to thank you for honoring the request of our elders. Like, hey, don't text them, don't call them. Uh, some of you even bumped into me at the gym. And I'm like, am I supposed to talk to you? You know, uh, and, uh, and I just want to thank you for creating that space for us. Uh, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be trying to ease back into ministry and not jump feet first in the deep end of the pool, but wade into the pool. And so I'm just going to ask you to, to give me a little bit of grace period, um, knowing that I need to connect with elders and staff first and sort of get my bearings. And so I'm not going to be doing a lot of like, hey, lunches, coffees, let's get together right now. So just give me a little space for that. Um, thanks for understanding that need for on-ramp time. And you can pray uh, for, for me in particular to apply some of the things that I learned this summer into everyday life. Um, one of my favorite things was bumping into people who had mentioned things going on at CTK, and I'm like, and they'd say something about it, I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And I hope that that continues. One of the things that is going to change is my role in the church. And one of my prayers is I become less important at CTK. And so in doing this summer, one of the great things is a lot of other leaders have stepped up and staff have stepped up. And there are going to be things where you're going to think, like, I should ask Jeff about this, where I'm going to be like, I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know. Go talk to this staff person, this elder, and find out and, and engage. You know, so that's a good thing. That's really healthy for the church. And I'm excited about that, that change. So I want to say that. Let me pray for us before we jump into God's Word. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active. We pray that you would open your word now to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, today's sermon, you're going to have to humor me on this, is a little bit sermon and a little bit just sort of sharing with you some of what God has done in me this summer. Um, so I looked at, I picked Psalm 139, probably one of the best known of the Psalter. Because it's a psalm that resonates with a deeply human impulse and desire. We want to be known. We want to be known, not just kind of buddy known, but comprehensively known. We long for, this is a very deep longing in our culture, for a soulmate, for somebody who really you know, gets me. This is why it's so popular. You can go on social media and take all kinds of the like, which Harry Potter character are you? Which Star Wars character, you know, like, you know, with, all those kind of quizzes, uh, even though the, the like rise in popularity right now of the Enneagram is, is we want to be known. We deeply want to be known. And, and the good news of Psalm 139, the sort of the subtext of the whole thing, God knows you comprehensively and still wants to be with you. Now, that is obvious. And some of you have known that for years. Some of you like memorized this psalm or parts of the psalm. And yet that is so simple and so important that I, I just want to say it again. God knows you comprehensively and he wants to be with you. He wants you to know him in those ways. He wants to open himself up to you. He wants you to know him in all of those places. Look, at, look how David sort of goes through this catalog. I'm just going to kind of walk through this psalm. Pick up your bulletin. Um, look at some of these verses. Verse 2. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know, there's no interior monologue with God. 
You remember the, it's an old movie starring Jim Carrey called Liar, Liar, where every interior thought that Jim Carrey had came out of his mouth. God knows us like that. There's no internal monologue that we have that God is not privy to. Look at verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down. Bruce Waltke, who's an Old Testament scholar, says this is your public life out on the path, out in public, and my lying down, my private life. Both are the same to God. He sees all of it. Um, look, at, look at verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows what you're going to say. He knows exactly. You, know, you want that person who can finish your sentences? God, God knows. Uh, look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then listen to all these different places. Um, it says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me fast. Now, David is not talking here about heaven and hell. These are not moral categories. Uh, when he talks about Sheol, uh, he's talking about down. And when he's talking about heaven, he's talking about up. And he's just, he's just charting out all the known points in an ancient Hebrew cosmog cosmogony, like, this is where all the places I can think of in the universe, God's there. I can't get away from him anywhere. Um, verse 11, if I say the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You know that 78% of all crimes are committed at night. But for God, day and light, day and night, they're, they're the same. He sees in both. Uh, verses, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. You know, God saw our, our ultrasound, our forming. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God knew the date of your birth. He knows the moles you have. He knows everything about you. You see, David goes like to the very limits of everything he can imagine with regard to self-knowledge. We would put like DNA on there. We would put things like, um, you know, God knows our cellular structure and our genetic coding. Like, David says, I go down every one of those pathways and who do I find at the end of the pathway? I find God at the end of every pathway. Everywhere I go, you are there. I can't imagine any place where you don't know, where you don't know. Um, in my mother's womb, yes. In the darkness, yes. In my inner thoughts, yes. In my private moments, yes. You know, this summer on sabbatical, to be really transparent with you, I was really hoping for some lightning bolt mountaintop experience. You know, I was, I was waiting to come back like Moses from the mountain. I have been with the Lord, you know, like, and uh, come in and just be completely transformed by that. And God had a different plan for my sabbatical this summer. Uh, God's plan for this summer was um, taking me on a journey to get to know myself. Now, that may sound really weird. You're like, you're a pastor and you don't know yourself. Time to find another church. And yet, can I just be really, you know, transparent? One of the weird things about being a pastor is sometimes I don't know where this role ends and I begin. I've been a pastor so long, sometimes as a professional Christian, I don't know who I am. And so this summer has been a real kind of pause 
for God to help me to get to know me. And that's come some through uh, meeting with a, a spiritual director, some reading a lot of books, uh, some being married to a rock star counselor in training named Susan who asks great questions, and um, some uh, I looked at the Enneagram this summer. Uh, some has been time in silence and solitude. Um, some has just it's been being away from ministry, and it's been really helpful for me. Um, but truth be told, that was part of the sabbatical I didn't always enjoy. I like canoeing. You know, I love my hammock, like fishing. You know, all those things are great. But being alone or God showing me my internal motivations and attitudes and what drives me, uh, no thanks. You know, that, that's the part that I didn't plan on. And it, that's, it's really difficult for me, maybe you relate to this, to look in the mirror. And yet, this is what I found this summer, is following all those pathways, God is at the end of all the pathways. God knows us. There's nothing that surprises him. And so this is really the first observation from Psalm 139, is that knowledge of self brings us to knowledge of God. Learning about me, learning about what motivates what's on the inside, that can bring us to a knowledge of God. You know, I didn't come up with that. That's actually from the French, the French theologian, John Calvin. It's the introduction to his masterwork. Um, and, and in the first chapter there, he, he talks about this, like knowing yourself should bring you to knowing God. That's in the Institutes. It's, it's, it should be the case that the more we know ourselves, the more we want know the one in whom we live and move and have our being. So, so can I encourage you in this? Like if you're at a place of going to counseling and your counselor tells you things, you're like, I'm paying you money and this is what you tell me? Or a friend points out things and like, you're really defensive about that. Did you notice that? A spouse, uh, maybe, maybe you're using some tool like the Enneagram or like yesterday's Barnabas Center training. There's, if, if you're using those things and it doesn't bring you to God, doesn't bring you to him, you're not doing it right. Because knowledge of self should take us to knowledge of God. So let's see how this works in the psalm. Because in this psalm, we're going to see that there's a problem with that. There's a jerry-rigged way of dealing with that. And then there's a gospel space for that. So let's look at this together. See, here's the downside. Here's the problem with being known. You get this, I'm sure, intuitively. Uh, to be known is our greatest desire... And yet, it's kind of scary. Frederick Buechner is an author that I really like, and in his book, Telling Secrets, he says this, What we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, to be, is to be known in all our full humanness, and yet that's often just what we fear more than anything else. I mean, can you feel that? And it's reflected here in verse 1. God, you have searched me and you know me. That word searched is the word for weighing. In Hebrew language, when something you say something is holy, it means it's, it, it has the connotation of being heavy. And it's kind of strange for us, but it means it has substance to it. So when God, God is holy, he's, you know, there's, there's a sense of substance to him. And, and the, therefore, like the opposite of that, of being unholy, being a sinner, is dust. <sighs> Not having substance. And so we say like, when he says, God, you have searched me and you know me, it begs the question, all of us are afraid, is really the question. 
Am I a person who has any substance to me? Or am I just dust? See, to be known, this is what we both want and what we don't want. Uh, our college intervarsity leader, a guy named Roger, uh, used to do this little thing. He's talking about, we do this with God all the time. Go away, come here. <laughs> Go away, no, come here. You know, I'm like, I want both. I'm not sure what I want. You see this in this psalm. You know, um, verse 7, when he talks about God's presence, he talks about it being over here and over here and over here and over here. But he doesn't, I want you to think, think like a Hebrew about this because he's not speaking about this like science class. You know, in science class, they'll talk about a vacuum and you introduce oxygen into the vacuum and what happens? It fills up the space. It goes to all the corners. It kind of spreads out inside. But God's presence isn't like here. It's not like an inert gas. <laughs> In fact, the word for presence here is face. He's saying, God, your face is looking at me right here. And your face is looking at me right here. And your face is looking at me right here. Where can I go to get away from your presence? Your face. I mean, picture Lord of the Rings, the giant eye. Right? This isn't a comforting thought. This is a oh-no thought. Where can I get away from you? Um, isn't the face of God a threat to us as sinners? You know, we're exposed. We're, we're naked. We're like, oh my, I don't want you to see. You, know, you remember another Jim Carrey movie, uh, all my 90s references today. So, uh, The Truman Show. The Truman Show was a movie about a reality TV show. It was a movie about a man named Truman Burbank who grows up in what he thinks is a normal world, but it turns out it's all in a giant dome in Hollywood. And everybody he interacts with are actors. And everything in his life is on reality TV 24-7, broadcast all the time and around the world. And so what the, the producer of the show is trying to do is capture like, Wow, this ultimate everyman who we can get to know and experience his life as he experiences it. And yet what we see is a man who is exposed utterly. I mean, who wants to volunteer to be Truman Burbank? None of us. And yet the psalm says we are on the Truman Show with God. He sees that much. This is why verse 6 makes so much sense to me. Uh, when David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, I can't attain to it. Now, that word wonderful is like our word awesome. And I'm a child of the 80s, so awesome is permanently lodged in my vocabulary, no matter how hard I'm trying to get rid of that word. I'm like, I hate that word. But wonderful and awesome are not used, the, the old meanings of those words are not like the modern way we use them, which sound like meaningless words. Awesome. It's related to awful. Wonderful is related to wondrous. And what they mean is there's something so big and overwhelming. So when David says this, he's not, oh, it's a wonderful life. He's not saying that. He's like, oh my word, this is too much. That's why he says, this is too much for me. I can't attain it. It's blowing my mind. This is blowing all the circuits. See, imagine this. Let me, we'll, uh, Visual time. So I got the biggest knife I could find from our house, okay? Um, I got the biggest knife. Now, you know um, how to hand someone a knife the right way, right? You give them the handle. You don't give them the blade. 
right? You, you give them the handle. Now, let's imagine, though, this is a really sharp knife. It's not, okay? But let's imagine this is a really sharp knife, and you hand it to me the wrong way, and my only choice is to grab the blade. Now, what happens? The reality of the blade, as sharp as it is, comes into the reality of my hand. And which one's more real in that moment? The blade. And I'm cut. See, this is what it's like to get near the living God. This is why we're afraid. Because the reality of who God is in His holiness, in His perfection, and it coming into reality with my life, it's a threat. It's dangerous to us. It cuts. This is why, man, it is so hard to look at self. You know, one of the things that I experienced over and over this summer is I'm like, getting to know me, I'm like, ugh. I'm probably the only person who feels that way about looking inside. But man, it's hard for me. I would rather do pretty much anything. And that's why having a sabbatical where I'm like forced to sit still, really hard and really good. But like, ugh. Do you have that feeling of like, I don't, I don't want to see what's inside. And, and the truth is we can't comprehensively know ourselves. You know, this is why Proverbs tells us a man's heart, a person's heart are like deep waters. Only a person of understanding, like a counselor, can help you draw that out. Or Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? That there are parts of you that you can't even know, this is, that you can't even understand. See, but this is the deal. You know, the more we get near God, to come near Him is threatening. It's threatening. So it's too awful. So what do we do about it? And as I said, there's a fake way to deal with this, and there's a gospel way to deal with this. And I want to think briefly about both of these. Listen, um, the first one we see in verse 11. David continues when he recognizes, I'm on the Truman Show. Look at verse 11. If only the darkness could hide me. I mean, do you feel that? <laughs> like, I would love it for it to be nighttime right now. I see me, and I wish I could turn off the lights. So look, when we see, learn about God's all-seeing and all-knowing human beings, we long for a covering. And this goes back to our first story. If you turn to the first pages in the Bible, and it's funny, this was in our Barnabas Center teaching yesterday. Um, turn to the first pages of the Bible. When Adam and Eve sin, they immediately hide. They immediately cover up. And a lot of people are like, oh, they were covering up because they didn't have any clothes on. That's not all of why they covered up. There's sin, guilt, but there's also shame. And so they, they do something very odd. They make clothes out of leaves, which I can't imagine were very comfortable or very effective. Right? They, they, they go and they, they make these coverings for themselves to try to hide. And what's fascinating, though, is when God finds them, God calls them, where are you? And they say, I, Adam says, I was naked and so I hid. What he's saying is, not only I was naked, but I'm still experiencing, even though I'm wearing leaves, a sense of shame, a sense that I need to be covered. And this, this is sort of what David's saying here. I wish there was some darkness that could hide me from you. We still do this. We do this all the time. We dress up our insides. We, we hide. You know, and... and these are not always like bad, horrible things. Church, we, we talk a lot about idolatry, but I want to think about like, 
They're just things that we do. Some of them we've learned from our families. You know, our family, we don't, we don't uh, have emotions. That's, those are not helpful, right? You, some of you grew up in families with Larry. Like, you've got things. A little extra baggage to take with you as you leave the house, right? Um, but it's not just from our families. We're really good. We're super creative at coming up with ways to de- defy, defy uh, and deny and deflect what we see on the inside. This is one of the things that's hard for me. Um, I can testify that one of the things that God has done in me this summer is show me ways that I am really great at coping with what's on the inside without going to Jesus with it. And so I found things like, I like to be busy for God because being busy for God is easier for me than being present with God. Or like, I love to plan for the future because planning for the future I can at least like have some control over, but being present, man, that's hard. Or filling my time with people because I don't do silence and solitude. There's nobody to impress. There's nothing to do. Those are just a couple of Christian-y examples, but all of us have ways that we have rigged our hearts to run without God being close to us, without being near Him. So, look, if, if, let's say you go to counseling, and the counselor tells you things you don't want to hear, or you take a, a personality quiz like the Enneagram, or you go to our training like you did yesterday, and you hear about relating styles, and you're like, yuck, what do you do with that? Well, here's what I find we do with that. We have... One of three things. We either use it as a hall pass, or we use it as a verdict, or we use it as a gift. What do I mean by that? Well, hall pass, you remember high school. You get the hall pass to be able to leave class and go to the bathroom and stay a couple extra minutes. You know, you know that's what you did, right? And, and what I find is sometimes when we get information about ourselves that we don't like to see, You know, one of the things we do with that is we're like, well, I guess that's who I am. Don't expect much from me. I'm never going to change. Like, I'm a type 8. I don't do gentle. I'm an introvert. I don't do people. Right? You know, we we use that as an excuse like, well, I guess I'm off the hook for this one. But God doesn't let us off the hook with things like loving our neighbors, loving one another, growing in Him, learning more about repentance and faith. Um, Sometimes we use that like a verdict. And we're just so beaten down, like, man, I just got inside about myself, and I feel terrible. Sort of stuck. But that also can be a gift. See, one of the things that I've, I've noticed that God does in my life is he doesn't go, voila! He shows me a little bit at a time. Because I can't handle seeing all of what's on the inside. He's very kind and gentle with sinners. And he shows us new areas, new opportunities for us to draw near him. And, and here's the question. How are you going to receive that? How do you receive inter- in knowledge about you? Is it an opportunity? Is it a hall pass? Is it a verdict? But see, this is not where David ends. Look, this is not, David doesn't just end at insight. Oh, I guess that's just me. Look what he does here. Rather, at the end of all this catalog that he does in this psalm about all the ways God knows him, Even the ways that that's threatening, there's a turn. Look at this, verse 17 and 18. Pull out your bulletin. What does he say here? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Or or, um, look at verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know me. Look, 
You know me. I want you to know me more. What happens? Well, let me remind you, this, this is truly awesome. All right. um, we run from this kind of exposure. But look what David does here. He, he turns. There's a turn. And, and I want you to remember who's, who's writing this psalm. This is not David the perfect guy. Yes, and, and he's called at one point a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man who would have appeared on the Me Too list. This is a man who took another man's wife and had him killed. This is not the like perfect guy. And yet this is the same man who wrote a psalm where he's like, Lord, you know me. I want you to know me more. I mean, something is going on here. How can he say that? I can't say how David got there. But in the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture, I can tell you how we get there. And it's through just what you've been doing all summer, finding Jesus in the Psalms. Look at the ways we see Jesus in this psalm. You see, Jesus, who on the cross lost the face of God. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus on the cross, as he's dying, he cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the Father turns his face away from his Son. Jesus is rejected. He loses the face, the presence of God the Father. Why? So that you and I, for whom the face of God is scary, we suddenly, that's transformed for us into invitation and delight and God who loves to know you and look at you. Not in a searching way, but in a loving way. Second, we see this. Jesus, the one who was unclothed, so you could be clothed. Sometimes when you see depictions of Jesus on the cross, uh, you see this picture of Jesus, and it looks like he's wearing a diaper. Seen those? Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? We know from the, the accounts in the Gospels that the soldiers, when Jesus was dying, they were gambling for his underwear. They were gambling for his underwear, which means that Jesus was wearing nothing on the cross. He was shamed to death. He was unclothed. And you know that feeling of like, wow, God looking at me makes me feel naked. Jesus was shamed and made naked so that you are forever clothed in his righteousness. God, God looks at you as one who is dressed in him. He delights in you. Third, Jesus, the one who gets the darkness, so you get the light. Remember the, the account of, in the Gospels of Jesus' death tells us there's a strange happening during the afternoon. Picture a total eclipse. It says the land got really dark. The darkness falls. So what happens? So even as the darkness falls on him, the light of God pours into your life. And it's a light that's not to expose you, but to bring you warmth, and healing and wholeness. And finally, Jesus who was pierced. Remember my illustration of the knife. We know at the cross, the soldier took a sword, a spear, and plunged it into his side. And blood or water flowed out. And we know that Jesus was pierced so that what is handed to you is access to God.
not what cuts, but what gives life. Look, if you know Jesus, and this is whether you've known Jesus for a long time, or whether you're fresh in here or you've never been to a church before, one of the things I want you to hear is there is more. And when God shows up, he gives access and a way for you to draw near to him, not just once, over and over again. Because remember, he knows you comprehensively and he wants to be with you. So God gives us gospel moments all the time. He gives us gospel moments all the time to find him not as judge, but lover, not as father, but daddy, but daddy. This is why David says here this strange line about God's thoughts, verse 17. Remember, remember earlier in the psalm, he talks about his thoughts. His thoughts are laid bare before God, and that's kind of frightening. But then look what he says here in verse 17. Precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Again, a weak word in English. We think of like a little person as, pre as precious or precious moments. <laughs> this is not that kind of precious. This is like precious metals, like of ultimate value. How valuable to God, to me, God, are your thoughts of me that you have so provided for, for me in this way, this kind of comfort. You know, when my children were little, we would hear this refrain at the park, in the backyard, and at the pool. And some of you remember this from being a little kid. Some of you may know this because you have little kids. But I remember hearing, and like sometimes in the middle of the night hearing, look at me, Daddy, look at me. You remember that one? And, and, you know, kids are like, look at me riding my bike. Look at me jumping off the diving board. You know, look at me wearing my new shoes. Look at me. And it's, it's this, like, word of incredible intimacy. And what, what is a child saying? How precious to me are your thoughts, Daddy. Look at me. See, that's the cry of a soul who has learned the kind of access we're given to God. That we come to Him on the safe end that his light that pours into our life is an opportunity for us to know him better. All the places where we're tempted to run away, all the places where I'm like, yuck, on the inside, I don't want in here. Those are not threats. Those are opportunities to know him. Let me say this in closing. You know, some of you are in the business world and have learned, you'll probably be familiar with this kind of weird business speak that's sort of out these days. There's a new kind of business speak that uses the word space to describe a position. So, you know, you can go to seminars on someone who's, well, you know, stepping into the leadership space. It's ridiculous, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, we used to call that the CEO, right, or the boss. You know, and they're occupying a leadership space. Uh, but I think that's helpful language for Psalm 139 because the psalmist here, David, invites us to step into the gospel space. And it's a space where his language invites us to know and be known. Saying, this is why David does this weird judo move from the first verse to verse 23. Says the first verse, he says, you've searched me and you know me. But then the end, what is he saying? You know me, know me more. I want more of your look. I want more of your face. I want more of your knowing of me. Search me and know me. This, this would be my prayer for us as a church, is there's more. You know, a lot of us have been Christians a long time, and you sort of fall into patterns of like, this is what it's going to be. This is kind of how I do my Christian thing. I guess this is as good as it gets. 
But here's my invitation for you. There is so much more. Can you, can you pray the prayer of David as he says these words? And I'm going to say this three times. I want you to hear it. Lord, you know me. Know me more. Lord, you know me. Know me more. Lord, you know me. Know me more. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.